Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Isabel Vincent is an award-winning writer and investigative journalist, and the author of the new book, Overture of Hope, Two Sisters' Daring Plan That Saved Opera's Jewish Stars from the Third Reich. The book uncovers the amazingly true story of Ida and Louise Cook, two British opera fans who masterminded their own plan to rescue dozens of German and Austrian Jews from a terrible fate. Vincent began her career in the 1990s as a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail, covering the conflicts that led to the Kosovo War. Since 2008, she has worked as an investigative reporter for the New York Post with a focus on exposing corruption, fearlessly pursuing the truth in an age where truth is under attack. Some of Vincent's other books include See No Evil, The Strange Case of Christine Lamont and David Spencer, Bodies and Souls, The Tragic Plight of Three Jewish Women Forced into Prostitution in the Americas, Gilded Lily, Lily Safra, The Making of One of the World's Wealthiest Widows, and her moving culinary memoir, Dinner with Edward, which along with Overture of Hope have been adapted for the big screen. Vincent's writings have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Independent, and many other international publications. She's also the recipient of numerous prestigious honors, including the Canadian Association of Journalists Award for Excellence in Investigative Journalism and the National Jewish Book Award. We welcome Isabel Vincent, to Art Laws. Isabel, so your new book, Overture of Hope, will be released this week, September 13th. And you discovered a story that few people knew about and used your investigative reporting skills to excavate and piece together this untold history. Can you tell us what Overture of Hope is about and your impetus to write it? So Overture of Hope is mainly about two ordinary, extraordinary sisters heroines of the Second World War that nobody's really heard of, even though they were honored by Yad Vashem in 1964, among the first women to be honored by Yad Vashem, at the same time that Raoul Wallenberg and Oscar Schindler were honored. So everybody remembers them, but nobody remembers the Cook sisters because they were plain, self-effacing. They didn't make a big deal about what they did, but what they did was truly amazing. They were opera fans. They became opera fans in the 1920s and the 1930s in London. And they befriended some of the biggest divas of the day. Among the people they befriended was Hitler's favorite conductor, a Viennese man named Clemence Krauss. He was the one who approached them and asked them to help him save Jewish musicians and scholars. So really, this is the story of three heroes because I consider Clemence Krauss a hero, even though he was close to the Nazi regime, but I think he used his closeness in order to help save the people that he wanted to save. And my impetus for writing this was, was first of all, that people really didn't know this story. And second of all, I wanted to celebrate the fact that they were, at least the Cook sisters, were pretty ordinary women who decided that they were going to help when they were asked to help, and they didn't let fear, they didn't let anything stand in their way. And in that sense, I guess, I wasn't going to let anything stand in my way to tell the story, even though it took, I mean, I say in the book that it took three years, it actually took five years to go through. 
and find their letters, which were spread out in archives around the world and piece together what exactly they had done. And some of them had even been burned by Louise Cook writing at one point. Exactly right. And, you know, I've pondered that. I thought at first that she burned the letters. Louise was the older sister, and she taught herself German at lightning speed in order to help with the relief effort. I should say that both of them were bureaucrats. They were clerks. In London, right? And there were two British non-Jewish sisters that really hadn't ever met Jewish people before. And so this was a leap and they didn't, they were so oblivious early on to politics and, and what was really going on. I know they were clerks, you were about to say. They were totally oblivious. And it was Clemence Krauss's wife, the soprano Vioritsa Urschlag, who introduced them to their first refugee, if you will. And this was a woman named Mitya Meyer-Liesman, and she was coming to London on a lecture tour. She was an expert on opera, and she was lecturing in London. And this was, I think, about 1935 or so. And Urschlag, the soprano, said, can you please take care of her? And what Mitya Meyer-Liesman was doing was trying to figure out how to leave Frankfurt, because the writing was on the wall for... Jews in Germany. The Nuremberg laws had been introduced. She had lost her job at the conservatory. Her husband's business was in peril because he had to shut it down. So she came to visit the Cook sisters in London and they took her on a tour of the city and they went to a few of the churches. And at the second church that they went to, Ida turns to her and says, are you Protestant or Catholic? And Mitya Meyer-Liesman turns to the sisters and says, I thought you knew I'm Jewish. And that was it. They'd never met a Jew. They couldn't quite believe what was going on with the Nuremberg laws. They couldn't believe that Jews were being asked to leave. I mean, not asked to leave, forced to leave schools and their employment. And if they wanted to leave the country, they had to hand over all of their valuables to the Nazis. And they could leave with something like 14 Reichsmarks, which was really a pittance. So that's how they first became aware of the situation. And then they actually took a trip to Frankfurt in the early days to see for themselves what was going on. And they researched what they could do to bring people to England. And one of the ways that they realized that they could bring people over was by getting them domestic visas. So visas that would allow them to work as butlers or maids and at one point also students. But this was the only way out for a lot of the early refugees that they helped. Mm -hmm. There was a real naive quality to Ida and Louise, but what I found really interesting was when you first started looking into them, you took them for British spies. So I'm just kind of curious, what was it about them and sort of what they were doing that you, you thought that could be a possibility? So I thought they were spies Precisely because of the previous question you asked about Louise burning all of the archive that they had Mm -hmm. of the people they saved after the war. I thought, why would she do that? So there were a number of reasons. First of all, Louise teaching herself German. I just thought that was amazing, you know, in like a couple of months. Secondly, they met with a lot of the resistance in places like Frankfurt and Berlin. Like they were in touch with people in the resistance. They used their homes to interview their prospective refugees. The other thing was, at one point, 
Ida decides she's going to rent a flat in Pimlico in a new development where the head of MI6 had two apartments and a bunch of other sort of suspicious people did as well. And I thought, wow, that's really, I mean, it was all sort of circumstantial on my part to think that, but I thought all of those things together made it sound like they, yes, they could have been spies and they would have had the perfect cover, right? Sort of these self-effacing clerks who go off to attend opera performances in Germany and Austria just before the war. And they were very clever. Both of them were extremely intelligent. And I just thought maybe they're really working for the British Secret Service. But as I got deeper into it and spoke to people who knew them, they were like, no, they weren't spies. They were just doing this on their own. Right. And it seemed like they got, at least from your book, it seems like they got pulled further and further into it the more they met these people and heard their stories and heard really got what was going on, the horrific nature of it. Yeah. And it was also that naivete that you mentioned that sort of, they didn't have any prejudices over not being able to help. Like they were just very practical and they thought, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to help. I think that really worked to their advantage and they weren't going to take no for an answer, even when they were told no. In the case of a few refugees, you see Ida going to the Jewish refugee office in London and saying, well, you need to change this form. You need to change the quota number on this form so that this person can come in. And just that bold, we're not going to let these bureaucratic niceties get in the way of saving people's lives. I wonder, I was so, first of all, surprised to find out that Ida Cook was this prolific novelist. And I wonder with their love of opera and the fact that Ida was a novelist, Was there sort of any element of their sort of trying to get out of their humdrum lives and finding adventure sort of based on all this adventure they have around them, surrounding them? I mean, is there any part of their personality where they were looking for something more in their lives? People told me that's a really good question. I think they really lived through, you know, they had this romantic life through opera and Ida certainly through the romance novels. She wrote something like 170 of them. But it was a partnership. People told me that Louise helped her with the plots. And I think when they were presented with this opportunity, I mean, it was like being in an opera. It was Mm -hmm. sort of a combination of tragedy and farce. You know, if you think about it, two sisters sneaking into sort of the Third Reich on their weekends and then Sunday night or Monday morning coming back and going back to their sort of boring lives. This was the highlight of their lives. And it felt, I'm sure it felt to them like they were characters in their own opera. And it was such high stakes and they got checked at the border and they were sometimes smuggling jewels and valuables over by wearing them outright because they thought they looked unsuspecting. And it was really a dangerous situation. And yet the bravery and kind of increased risks, they kept going, which is pretty amazing to me. I love that about them, like Mm -hmm. that hiding in plain sight. We'll just take all these valuables and plaster them on our Woolworths dresses and the guards at the border will just think it's cheap. It's (laughs) imitation jewelry. And why not? And then they themselves coined the phrase, the nervous British spinster act. 
that if they were caught at the border, like I, I would never have used the word spinster, it's not cool, but they were happy to use it. And if they were caught at the border with their purses stuffed with jewelry and Swiss watches, they would just tell the border guards, well, you know, we don't feel comfortable leaving this with anybody in London, so we have to carry it with us. So they had figured this all out to their credit. And I guess we're emboldened by the fact that for some people, Ida and Louise were their only hope right. of getting out of Germany or Austria at that time. And, and they never did get married. And they, they really just lived their lives with each other and with this purpose. And with opera. And even after the war, mm-hmm. they continued to volunteer at displaced persons camps. There are many letters that Ida sent to the American soprano Rosa Poncel that I found at the New York Public Library, Lincoln Center branch, mm-hmm. where she's talking about working on a tuberculosis campaign in Bavaria at a displaced persons camp. And she and Louise were organizing birthday parties for the kids and it never stopped. In the field of opera, they helped sort of emerging opera singers. They financed their career. There's a woman I tracked down in Los Angeles, Manny Meckler, who owes her entire opera career to the Cook sisters because they financed her studies in Florence. And then they went with a little entourage to every performance that Manny did, whether I think her first performance was in Stockholm and the Cook sisters were there and the Cook sisters were at her Metropolitan Opera performances. So they never stopped helping other people. And even during the Blitz, you had talked, Isabel, about Ida working in some of the bomb shelters and protecting people, making sure the people in the shelters in the East End of London were safe. It's just amazing. You say it never stops. And that was high risk as well. Yes. And given that we are about to witness the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, mm-hmm. I mean, it was so important to them to live this life of service. Mm -hmm. And there are many letters that I found where Ida is commenting on how wonderful it was to be at the Queen's coronation in 1952, 1953, and how she was in the streets with all the people wishing her well. I mean, this was like foundation of their family was that they existed to help other people. And it was something that they grew up with. And, you know, I just reminded of that after the Queen's death last week. Mm -hmm. Did their parents know what was going on? Or did they keep it a secret from their family as this was going on? No, their parents knew. There was a situation in which I think it was Georg Maliniak's rescue. So this was the deputy conductor of the Vienna Opera who was a Polish Jew, and his situation was very difficult for them. It was just before the war. They thought they weren't going to get him out. They exhausted all possibilities. And at one point, Ida was just beside herself and crying to her family. Mm. And her mother just kind of looked at her and said, you know what, get on with it and just pick yourself up and find some other way. And she did. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, they were in the back. I mean, they, the, the, the sisters lived with the parents in London. And during the time that they were bringing the refugees over, so like 1938, 39, there were 15 refugees at one point living 
in their Pimlico flat, which was a one bedroom apartment. So the parents knew exactly what they were doing. And I think we're very supportive. Mm -hmm. As a podcast that focuses on renegade artists, it struck me that so many artists were being targeted by the Nazi regime and music by classical composers who were born Jewish, such as Mendelssohn and Mahler, were banned as compositions by Claude Debussy because he'd married a Jew. You talk about Alan Berg, Stravinsky, and Paul Hinsmith were labeled degenerate and forbidden. Can you talk about this? And also, why now do you see parallels in terms of the relevance of this book at this point in time? So, yes, about the artists. And certainly, you know, one of the people who comes to mind is Stefan Zweig, the great writer, the mm-hmm. Austrian Jewish writer, who ends up getting out of Vienna and going to Paris, going to London, and then ends up outside Rio de Janeiro where he kills himself. And his letter is just his, the suicide note he left is just so grim. It's like, I can't face this dark night is never ending. Like, even though he's safe, like the culture from which he came is no longer there. And so he felt like he just couldn't continue. Mm -hmm. But Yes, this was happening to a lot of conductors got in trouble for daring to conduct any musician, not even if they weren't Jewish, but if they were deemed to be degenerate by the Nazis, that was sort of the kiss of death. And you see Clemence Krauss coming in and having no qualms about taking over the positions of other conductors just were expelled from or or didn't want anymore under the Nazis. And he really tried to work within the hierarchy, even though he was never a member of the Nazi party, but he did work with all of the upper level Nazis to get Mm -hmm. ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, he did things like requisition the apartments in Munich of Jews who had been rounded up and taken to the gas chambers for his singers and musicians when he was put in charge of the Munich Opera, which was really the showpiece of of the Third Reich. But then, you know, you've got this dichotomy of character where he's like asking the Cook sisters to help save all these people. And, you know, of course, this was something that he couldn't, you know, that there's no real record of this because he would have been put in a concentration camp had people known at the time. But Ida really does make a point of telling Yad Vashem in her letters to them before they honored her, that they really needed to honor Clemence Krauss because he was really the mainspring of their work. He was Mm -hmm. the one who set them on their work. And the parallels today, when I was back in February, when the Russians went into Ukraine, with their flimsy excuse of liberating the eastern part of the country, the Russian speakers in the eastern part of the country, I thought this is 1938 Sudetenland, mm-hmm. <laughs> Adolf Hitler. It was like something out of Hitler's playbook. And then you saw, especially in those first weeks, the extraordinary, ordinary heroes, Zelensky saying, you know, that the US had offered to get him out of the country. And he said, no, I'm going to stay here and fight. This just reminded me of the Cook sisters uh, all over again. I mean, people standing up to tyranny, which is what they did. Yeah. This book's a great reminder of that. I want to just let people know, in addition to Overture of Hope, I mean, you've written amazing, many amazing books, but you're also an investigative journalist for the New York Post. And you've been doing that since 2008. I just, I'm curious, what first attracted you to this newspaper? 
Well, this is how it happened. I was living in Rio de Janeiro at the time. I was a correspondent based in Brazil. And a friend of mine was working at the Post, and she said that there was an opening for a person on their investigative unit. At that point, they had a four-person investigative unit. And so I just applied not knowing anything about the Post at all. And I, I come from Canada, and my first job was at the Globe and Mail, which is the paper of record in Canada. It's the equivalent of the New York Times national paper. So I, you know, so I didn't know what I was getting into. And I got the job. And the day that I got the job, my editor at the time called me and said, you do know that you will no longer have a year to work on stories, because sometimes I did have a year to work on a story. You know, you will be expected to write about celebrities from time to time. And of course, I knew none of that, but I said, okay. And it just seemed like this great adventure. And actually, I have to say, that it's probably the hardest job in journalism I've ever had because it's so competitive. We compete against all of the New York press and everything we do has to be original. And doing investigative stuff in New York is not easy. And I learned a great deal about public document research, which I'm very, very grateful for. And one of the things that the Post has taught me is that there's nothing I can't find if I really want to find it. I just have to be persistent. And I have to say that I work with some really great people who are brilliant journalists. So not knowing anything about it and then becoming a so-called investigative journalist there. I mean, I say so-called because I think all journalism by its very nature should be investigative, but it's been a real education for me, especially on looking at, you know, something I've really specialized in is corrupt charities. And that really is something I believe in covering because a charity really has the public trust. They don't pay taxes. You're donating your money to charities and they have to be above board. And so many of them, unfortunately, are not. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's, I think that, again, I, I never even thought about the differences between a tabloid and a broadsheet, but the post particularly is like a very tough place to work in terms of what I just said earlier about finding original work and digging deep. And digging for the truth. I think that's still, it has been a big mission of yours, I feel, from reading yes, your articles. And, and, and it's yes. all truths, like all sides of political spectrum. So mm -hmm. I was the first, for instance, to look at Donald Trump's very shady charity, the Trump Foundation. Mm -hmm. This was before he ran for president. And I just looked at this thing and I, and I thought, oh my God, there's like so many weird things going on. Like he's giving his son's school $52,000 a year, which is equivalent to tuition. Why is this going through the charity? And then all these people who had done work for Trump buildings were paying him through the charity. So what's the scam there? There was like no tax and nobody would talk about it, but I think we were the first to put that out. And then after he became president, the Washington Post did a similar story looking at the charity and they won the Pulitzer for it, which is fine. I'm not doing it to win awards, but it's just on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, I've done a lot of work on Black Lives Matter, the national organization, because when they first started out, they incorporated as a for-profit company in Delaware. And I was like, really? Why? Aren't, shouldn't they be a nonprofit? 
-hmm. and then continue to look at it and realize that there was money going to things that maybe it shouldn't have been going to. So at the beginning of my reporting on that, I think I was like the only one sort of questioning where the cash was going. And now everybody's questioning where the cash is going. And there's all this infighting after they got the $90 million that they did a couple of years ago. There was a lot of controversy in terms of where they were getting their funding, what special interest groups, which is interesting to me. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I get a lot of, I get a lot of threats and people getting on my case, but honestly, I just try to overlook it because I'm not, and, and I really try to hold true to this. Like I don't, I don't support any political parties. I don't give to charities because I really feel my, my duty is to look at everybody equally and they may be a little bit extreme, but I've sort of always been that way. And I just, again, it's, I really am grateful for the lessons I've learned in public document research. And this really helped me with the Cook sisters. We did a lot of research, not just in historical archives in Germany and Austria and in the UK, but we did things like we went to census data and we went through medical examiner's reports after people died to see how they died. And there were so many interesting things in that. For instance, and I hope I'm not giving it away, but in terms of Georg Maliniak, who ends up committing suicide in London after Mm -hmm. he's saved, the uh, coroner thought to add so many interesting details to his suicide. One that he, I mean, he's stuck his head in the oven, essentially, and turned on the gas. So this was interesting to me because he, he was really in mourning for his mother who died at Auschwitz in a very similar way. And one of the reasons, although one never knows why people commit suicide, but he had failed to realize his dream in London of being an opera conductor. And he'd had a chance to conduct an opera, a Mozart opera, on the Thursday, the day he died, but the day before the empresario, the head of the opera company had said, you know, we've given it to somebody else. We'll give you another chance some other time. So in the coroner's report, it actually says that he was dressed in a tuxedo. And I knew that the day that he died was the day that he was supposed to conduct that opera. And he sat in his kitchen and put his head in the oven. And I just thought, oh my God, that's so dramatic. And again, it, it came from the public document research. It was all there sort of waiting to be found. So I love when those kinds of things happen. And I really do owe it to the hard work that I've done over the last 14 years at The Post. Again, the thinking is, and I don't think I had this in my head before I started there, that there's nothing impossible. You can always find it if you're persistent. It may take you a while, but that that never giving up is something that I consider really valuable. Mm -hmm. In 1996, you wrote a book called See No Evil that was based on a series of articles you'd done, and you won a Canadian Associated Journalist Awards for Excellence and Investigative Journalism. And David Frum wrote, that See No Evil is a searing account of journalistic malpractice, one that belongs on the bookshelf of every journalist and every serious consumer of news. And Vincent's ominous conclusion should be framed, if there's a moral here, it lies in the ease with which public opinion in this country can be influenced and directed, especially by using distortions and lies. And this was written in the late 1990s, 
But what about today? Have the distortion and lies gotten worse? And as a journalist, how does this get turned around? I mean, if you could give any advice to young journalists today, what would it be? Thank you for for mentioning that. First of all, I just want to elaborate on Mm -hmm. what my fellow journalists did covering the case of these two Canadians who had been involved in a kidnapping of one of Brazil's wealthiest executives. They were holding him for like something like $30 million in ransom. One of the parents of one of the Canadians mounted a lobbying effort in Ottawa to convince the government to bring them home and to say that they were victims of third world injustice. Those are their words. They'd been railroaded. They were in nasty jails in Sao Paulo. And so I believe that when I went to Brazil, I thought, okay, let's look in on them and see what's going on. And to my surprise, I realized they were guilty. And that for five years, the Canadian journalists who'd been covering the story had bought into the public relations effort of Brazil is a third world country. Brazil has street children. They kill street children. They're burning the Amazon. How could these guys get a fair trial? Well, they did get a fair trial. They were caught red-handed. They were caught by police the day that they liberated the kidnap victim. But I made a mistake in the book. I, I mean, it, it wasn't a mistake, but I said that Canadian journalists as a whole had been really lazy and hadn't done their work properly. And they allowed a country to be demonized in order to tell this story about the innocence the, the, or the non-innocence, if you will, of these two Canadians. So I'm always wary when there's some kind of public relations machine behind something. And that's why I think it's important to verify things on your own. I actually, in this case, I actually went to the prison where they were being held. I talked to the warden. I found out what they were eating. I learned that because they were political prisoners, they were treated very well. They weren't in a decrepit, awful place. They were in like the, if there is an elite jail, they were in the elite Brazilian jail. If they had a problem, the Canadian embassy or the Canadian consulate in Sao Paulo would come and help them. In the same way, you know, when opposition research firms send me information about a particular candidate or a particular entity, it's like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to see their spin on it. Even if they're right, I have to verify it through public records on my own or through my own sources. And I think that we have to stop we just have to do the work and do the due diligence as reporters because that's what people, and, and I'm not talking about columnists or people who are paid to have an opinion. I'm not paid to have an opinion. I'm paid, I think, to find out the truth still, as crazy as that sounds. But the truth is increasingly elusive because it's filtered through these opposition research firms, especially if you're doing anything on politics. So what I like to do is look at where candidates are spending money all of this is pretty much easily available. But I think the main thing is that we need to go back to the tenets of journalism and the shoe leather reporting and just digging deep into anything. Right. Again, right. Unless you're a columnist and then you can use all the opposition research that people throw at you. But I tend to really not like that. And anytime any, anybody sends me a press release, I just delete it. Um, I hate to admit that, but I... Well, you said something interesting before. You had said that, that you consider yourself apolitical as a journalist. 
do you think that partisanship has destroyed journalism? Well, I was a little bit taken aback when I saw my colleagues, my colleagues at the New York Times, for instance, tweeting about how much they loved, like this was during the campaign. And these were journalists assigned to cover candidates, not to opine on candidates, but they were seemed to be tweeting there how much they liked Hillary Clinton or hated Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. And I thought, gee, you just never would get away with that at my old newspaper, the Globe and Mail, or even at the Post. You know, they're pretty strict about that. If I did that, I'm sure I'd be fired. Like, again, showed a preference for a particular candidate and probably rightly so, because again, and I, I like to make that distinction between opinion and reporting. I mean, reporting should not have an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. I understand that. But you have to sort of set it aside and try to be fair. And right. I really do try to be fair in everything I do. And it's rare today because if we listen to cable news, it's become like professional wrestling and it is all editorialized. And that's so different than when I grew up. And those tenets of journalism, I wish they would come back. Yeah, again, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> I'm totally old school. That's how I learned to be a reporter. I didn't go to journalism school. I learned on local papers. I was editor-in-chief of my at the paper at the University of Toronto, the Varsity, which really was sort of a full-time job of, you know, there were 25,000 copies twice a week that you had to get delivered over three campuses. You had to sell ads. So I was in charge of all of that with a largely volunteer staff. And one of the most important things I learned doing that for a year was that the newspaper did not begin with you, that the newspaper did not end with you filing your story. That's where everything began. That's the editing began, the collection of photographs began, the laying out of the story began, and then it had to go to the printers. Now it doesn't need to go to the printers because everything's on the internet. But back then, we actually had to deliver the flats to the printers and then the next day get it delivered. And I just learned the importance of that whole system and how you just can't take it for granted and say, okay, now my work is done. I finished my story. That's when everything begins. And fact checking, what was that like at that time? Was it different than today? You just had to fact check yourself and the good reporter will fact check themselves. I see that we do it at the Post, but sometimes when you're on deadline, it's hard to do that. But that's actually a a really good question. Like the magazines are much more diligent about doing that than daily reporting. And I just think it's because of how fast you're expected to turn something around. Personally, I always go to the Post because I I do find that it's the most truthful media outlet. But I find myself and a lot of people find themselves going to independent journalists now just because there's a lack of trust. And I think viewership has gone down in TV news and, and in certain newspapers, readership has gone down. People just don't really trust the media. I'm wondering, where do you see media going? Where, where do you see things evolving to? And, and is independent journalism something that you see as sort of being the next place where next salvage of media? I'm curious. I think you're right about that. I think, you know, more and more people are going to Substack or they were going to The Intercept Or, you know, who I always liked was Democracy Now. I don't know if you watch that, but they're very sort of even keeled. I don't know if they would be considered independent. I guess they have a point of view. But I always 
try to look at the BBC or it's hard to say. I don't watch the networks. I don't watch Fox. I don't watch CNN. I think it's just, I think Robin, you said it's like wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm less and less inclined to sort of believe what they say. So I do think it's going more to independent media. And you know what? You know what? I think it's going to local media more and more because local media is the very essence, I think, of our democracy. And I think it should be supported more than it is today because I'd often thought of if I were teaching journalism that I would, or if, if I was affiliated with a journalism school, let's say, that one of the things I would try to do, and you know, maybe they do it now, is to look at underserved communities like the Bronx and New York and just see how students could get involved in actively doing journalism in those communities. Because I think it's so important that we get back to the roots of journalism. And I think that more so than independent media, although I think that's happening too, I think local media needs to be stressed. I think that's interesting because even during COVID, I mean, you started to see the importance of local government. And I think on that scale, I think people are starting to look more within and look sort of in their neighborhoods and around. And I think that's how things change. I think with these, you know, big networks, which are starting to fail more and more, I just, I don't think, I don't, I don't know how anybody can look at CNN or Fox or MSN and just believe anything is real that's being told to them. It's just, it's, there's no trust anymore. So I like that idea of going local. Yeah. It's become like some kind of entertainment. I, I don't know. What it's, is the Project Veritas? I'm just curious. Do you know anything about that group? Project, is that the one that sneaks up on people? and? <laughs> well, and, they, they expose corruption and maybe their tactic is a little, a little uh, aggressive, but I was just curious if, if their mission, because they're very much about exposing dishonesty and corruption within the government, within nonprofits. So I just was wondering what your thoughts I mean, were. I mean, good for them. Maybe the way they do it is, is a way that I wouldn't do it. I mean, I always tell people, I never pull punches. I always tell people who I am. And if it's a negative story, I actually tell people it's a negative story to give them a chance to reply. And it's, it's a little thing I learned at the Post where I call people up and I'd say, look, I think so-and-so really needs to get back to me because I'd like their comment. This is a potentially negative story. Hmm. And I just think that, I don't know, people respect that honesty, even if they're not going to call you back. I mean, to give them, you know, the opportunity to say what they want to say. I never beat around the bush. And like, would I do the undercover sort of prank journalism if it exposes corruption? I don't know. It's great if it's exposing corruption. Uh, I'll just say that. But I don't think I could participate in something like that. In your work exposing corruption, it's risky. And you did say you've had threats at those times. Is this something that's happened throughout your career? And how do you avert the danger? You know, I think, yes, I've had threats. People threaten you all the time in different ways. Like they threaten to sue you. I've been involved in a lot of lawsuits. Um, I'm involved in two lawsuits now. I've had security. But, you know, I always think that look at the reporters in Russia or look at the reporters in these other places that don't have the benefits that I have. If somebody threatens me at a big newspaper, there's like a whole corporate security apparatus behind me. I always think of the lonely journalists in 
in Russia who don't have that and who who get killed. <laughs> and what uh, about in Kosovo? Because you were a, a war correspondent there that you talk about in your book, Dinner with Edward. Yeah, Kosovo and certainly in Africa. But those those were scary situations where often you crossed a checkpoint, especially in Africa, like being um, guarded by kids on drugs, you know, like how do you sort of reason with that? That's a scary situation or being under fire. Mm-hmm. Um, in Kosovo, when I was, um, I'll never forget being in Angola in like the early 90s with the um, a photographer from the Globe and Mail, and him looking at me and saying, whose side are we on? <laughs> I was like, I just had to laugh. You know, we're on nobody's side, we're on the side of truth. But it was scary because you, you know, were you on the government side or were you on the rebels side? Depending where you were in the country, you know, you had to say the right thing. In Peru, during the Shining Path, again, the early 90s, the same kind of situation. We were going overland into Shining Path territory in the Andes. And the checkpoints were the same kind of thing. Like if you said the wrong thing, you could get captured by the Sendero Luminoso or the Tupac Amaru. I had a funny situation at that time where the Shining Path did, I mean, they didn't capture us, but they told us to follow them and sort of took us to dinner at their camp. And then the big question was fish or chicken? And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a lot scarier thinking about doing something and being in your home and thinking, I got to go to this place and it's scary, or I got to talk to this person and it's scary. Because once you're in a situation and you're working, you just have to work. At least that's what I do. It's like all of that leaves my head and I'm like, okay, who do I need to talk to and how am I going to get there? Mm-hmm. It's you so know, awesome. I'm, I'm scared awesome. of stupid things. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not the greatest driver and... So. <laughs> freaked out about, about it, stuff like that. It's really clear to me why you were attracted to the Cook Sisters now, because I think I feel like your life is very parallel, putting yourself in these very adventurous and risky and dangerous situations to expose the truth and to, I know, help a cause. And I think that that's interesting. I just, I want to talk about Dinner with Edward, your memoir, because Robin just mentioned it and it's so great. Can you just tell us a little bit about who Edward was and what drove you to write this memoir? So Edward was a neighbor of mine on Roosevelt Island. And I lived there for a few years after I'd moved to New York. And he was the father of a friend of mine in Canada. And Edward was in his early 90s when I first met him. And he had just lost his wife of 69 years. So Valerie, my friend in Canada said, oh, you know, you're on Roosevelt Island why don't you go see my father? He's also living on Roosevelt Island. So Roosevelt Island is this little place in the middle of the East River between Queens and the Upper East Side. And I thought, oh, great. You know, he's like 91. But, you know, I went to dinner. He invited me to dinner and I went there because I told Valerie I would. And then we just had the greatest time. And I was going through a bad period in my life when I was getting a divorce. And so I felt really awful. And Edward, again, had just lost his wife. So we would have dinner every week. And he was this tremendous cook. He would make these amazing things. And so I started writing down everything we ate and what he would say to me at these dinners. This is a man who'd gone through a lot of adversity in his life. He came from the South. He went to New York as a 19-year-old wanting to become an actor. 
and didn't quite make it as an actor, but met the love of his life, Paula, at a theater in Greenwich Village. And they went to LA to try to break into movies. Pearl Harbor happened. I mean, everything was sort of derailed in his career. And he ended up working in a factory, but he was the most erudite, smart person I'd ever met. And an opera fan went to theater and just was this amazing character. And I thought, I need to record this. And at one point he had said that, you know, he had all these scrapbooks of what he'd done in his life and what would happen to them after he died. And that's when I got the idea, well, I'm, I'm going to write a book about this because we became these very unlikely friends. He really became my best friend and, you know, just a tremendous person. And I just felt that needed to be celebrated. And it's been crazy. Like people still all over the world, people still write to me and talk about how much the book and his life has meant to them after reading the book. It's just great. It's just, and the thing about it is like in the West, we have completely lost the connection between the generations. So what I thought was great about this book is that you captured this friendship and, and you captured what you could learn from somebody that's been living much longer than you. Was that something you were conscious of when you were writing the book or is it something that just sort of for sure. Yeah. And, you know, we have this, I don't know what the view is about elderly people, but as a society, I don't think we pay that much attention to them. And they are so important. They've always been important for me. I was always very close to my grandmother. And I just felt, you know, Edward had so much to offer. And so did the people who I met at the, at the memorial service. Like they were like, a lot of them were, were in their 20s and he had befriended them. He had such a great spirit. So yeah, I was very conscious of that as well as being conscious of, again, related to the Cook sisters, ordinary, extraordinary people. Edward was one of them. Mm -hmm. The Cook sisters were the same. Mm -hmm. And in your next book that you're currently finishing, it's about the most celebrated African-American sculptor or sculptress. Edmonia Lewis, and she's got a current show at the Met, Forever Free. What most drew you to Edmonia Lewis? So again, it's this, I'm very interested in figures that were marginalized by history. Mm -hmm. And she certainly was because she was Black, because she was Native, but also because she was a woman. And what I love about her is that she really made her career during the Civil War she was surrounded by these do-gooder abolitionist women. So these white women in Boston sort of telling her what to do. And one of them wrote her a letter that I found saying, oh, you know, you're really not that good. So we think you should work in wood instead of marble. And at like 20 years old, Edmonia Lewis makes a little bit of money and buys a passage to Rome <laughs> where she sort of becomes part of this salon of other women sculptors, most of them lesbians who had gone to Rome so that they could A, be artists and be taken seriously and B, sort of live their lives the way they wanted to. I just thought that was great. And she at one point had 40 people working for her in her studio. She was working in white marble and Carrara marble like everybody else. And among the women that were in this little community was the woman who did the Bethesda fountain 
in Central Park. Another mm-hmm. woman did the Lincoln statue in the Capitol. So they were very well connected and brilliant artists. And it was amazing to me that she had to go to Italy in like 1864 in order to do what she wanted to do. That the people who were supposed to help her in the United States were really sort of putting her down. And she believed in herself enough that she was going to go to the other end of the world and do what she wanted to do. And then there's fascinating things that I found, like she would do sculptures for people's graves in America. She would get commissioned to do that. Mm -hmm. And in one instance or a couple of instances, one customer didn't want to pay her. So Moni Lewis takes her to court and she loses the court battle. And then she appeals and she gets all her money. So, I mean, that kind of self-belief and, you know, I'm not going to be taken for granted, that kind of strength is something that I really admire. And, you know, I did a previous book on um, Jewish women who had been forced into prostitution in Rio de Janeiro and, and Argentina and Buenos Aires. And in Rio, this is between 1867 and 1939. So in, in Rio, these women who were completely marginalized from their own community, from the Jewish community, because they were considered unclean, they were prostitutes, they formed their own burial society and their own synagogue. And I think it was the only place in the world that women formed their own synagogue. And it lasted for a number of years. And they were determined that if the Jewish community was going to expel them, they were still determined to practice their faith. And death became very important to them because they could come back to who they were. Like they were from you know, these shtetls and they'd lost contact with their families because a lot of them were illiterate. They couldn't read or write. They couldn't communicate with people back home. And they were forced into this terrible life. But at death, they were able to go through the purification ceremony. So when I read about these prostitutes purifying their fellow sisters, as they called them, in these ceremonies after death, I thought, oh my God, I have to know more about these women. And that was a few years. And it was just, it was just fascinating to me that they pooled their resources in 1916 in the hinterland that was Brazil at that time and created their own cemetery, which is still there. So this was something, and again, it was like this little footnote in history, like Edmonia Lewis was a footnote until a little while ago. Now she's a stamp, which is great. But the people who made the post office recognize her, and this just happened in January, are these elderly women who got together, one African-American, another white historian in upstate New York, where Edmonia was from, they got together and they weren't going to let her fade from history. They lobbied politicians to lobby the post office to create a stamp in her honor. And one of the women found her grave. For the longest time, nobody knew where she was buried. And she found her in a cemetery in London and then paid to have the grave restored. So I love that it was these ladies who set about doing this and they did it. And because of them, we know more about Edmonia Lewis. It's amazing when, when you were invisible. It seems with Bodies and Souls with Edmonia Lewis. I mean, when you were the Cook Sisters, when you were invisible, what you can accomplish. Sort of yes. The radar. And it seems that that's a through line through so much of your work, which is so, so wonderful that we're able to discover these people that, you know, were, were hidden from society in a lot of ways. 
Oh, and thank you. And and it's the same thing when somebody the other day asked me to a friend of theirs had died in an accident in North Carolina, and they didn't know the time of death, and they were Kabbalist, and it was really important to them. So I said, have you foiled the police? Have you done a freedom of information request to the police in that county? And they said, no, we don't know how to do it. And I said, I'll do it. And within a couple of days, we got the time of death when this woman walked into traffic. And it's the same thing. It's, it's finding out what is hidden for so many people that shouldn't be hidden or I don't know if I'm making sense, but it's, yeah, you are. it's that again, you know, you want to elevate it and call it looking for the truth. That's what it is. But I felt it was really important for this person to know what time their friend had died. And so the police report had the exact time. And I love public records. I mean, I know I said this before, but it's, I love doing that kind of research. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more than truth, it's dignity. It's, that's really what it is. It's giving these lives yeah. dignity, you know? And that's so, that's so rare these days. And I feel like we've lost that in so many ways. So it's Yeah, important. no, thank you. I, and I, I was really privileged. I felt really privileged to have worked on the prostitutes. Like for one of a better word, I'll call them prostitutes in Latin America, but also to have worked on the Cook sisters. I mean, I really like bringing them back to life was a real passion. And there's more stuff to discover. Like a couple of weeks ago, I reached out to the nephew of one of the women they had saved. And I had tried to get him at the beginning of my research, but he'd never called me back. This time he picked up the phone. And so he had all of these memories of the Cook sisters and what his aunt had said about them and had all these photographs. And he was very moved that talk about them again. The lesson there is just never give up. (laughs) Even if, even if you think that something is impossible, there's always a way to find it. I love that. And we're very excited about the release this week of Overture of Hope is such a riveting book. Thank you. And at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Six questions, 60 seconds, and one word answers. Alex, take it away. Favorite film? Third Man. Favorite dish to cook? Apple Galette. What are you reading right now? Well, what I just read was Ada Calhoun's Also a Poet. It's a brilliant book about Frank O'Hara and but mostly about her relationship with her father but it's it's like a treatise okay it's one word answer also a poet by Ada Calhoun favorite song girl from Ipanema favorite tv show to binge watch oh uh, Fauda but also Ozark favorite guilty pleasure watching Netflix (laughs) (laughs) it really is guilty pleasure (laughs) Thank you so much, Isabel. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at ArtLawsPod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.